0: Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us.
1: Now, this is the 67th sermon in our sermon series on Luke's gospel. And this evening, we will examine Luke chapter 15, the first 10 verses. That's page 874 in your pew Bible. You might also want to have your finger in our reading from Ezekiel chapter 34 on page 722 as well. Now, in chapter 15, Luke summarizes his narrative of the journey of Jesus to the cross, to underline the relation between God's gift and a Savior motivated purely by love for us. He does so in three coordinated parables. Two we will examine tonight. The lost sheep in verses 4 to 7. The lost coin in verses 8 to 10. And next Lord's Day, the lost son in verses 11 through 32. Now one commentator calls this chapter an artistically constructed unit with a single theme. And that theme is the joy of our Heavenly Father every time he finds and rescues a lost sinner like you and me. We also see here a Trinitarian relationship because the Lord Jesus also says that this work is his work. You can find it in Luke 19, verse 10. It says this, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now another commentator called chapter 15 the heart of Luke's gospel. Because it is here in chapter 15 that Luke's theme that that guides us all the way through the 24 chapters is written large. God's love, God's mercy for sinful human beings, God's call for repentance, his joy at the acceptance of his gift in Christ. You see, Luke's method is one with which we are very familiar. He shows this, he highlights this starkly in contrast between man's rejection and God's love. We find the the whole reason for this chapter in the first two verses. First, Luke writes how Jesus ate with tax gatherers and sinners. Why? We know why, don't we? We have followed this track all the way through the gospel since Luke chapter 4. He was concerned terribly concerned with their souls. They were lost, and he hoped to rescue them before it was too late. And what better way to do that than at a meal and that extended time that, that comes at table that can bring discussion of the deep things of God and of our own human need. The second thing that Luke tells us in these verses is how the tax gatherer and the sinner caused a reaction in the community they, because they betrayed their own people. You see, the tax gatherer had purchased the license to gather taxes on behalf of Rome. But what made it all the worst was the method of advancement, of enrichment. If you wanted to increase your income potential, in other words, if you wanted to gather more licenses to gather even more money, you could use any means at your disposal. Violence, the threat of violence, carrying out that violence in order to gain a bribe or a kickback in some way that would enrich you. And then you could buy even more licenses or or particularly favored ones to collect from a specific region or social class where the wealth, the pickings, were even greater. So the tax gatherer was hated utterly. Synagogues refused their tithe. Their testimony in court was denied, assuming that they could not tell the truth. It was impossible for them. They were cursed, more so than the Gentiles who hired them because they did it out of ignorance. But these people understood God's law and who they were in God's covenant and still they extorted the people. Now we see the contrast the stance of the scribe and the Pharisee. You see, we've learned, haven't we, in Luke's Gospel, how the Pharisees and the scribes were in even worse condition than the tax gatherers. The tax gatherers knew their condition was desperate. Their need was absolute. But the Pharisee, the scribe, did not. They thought that they indeed were accepted by their works. They were justified before God. And they protected that justification by their own works. Their so-called perfection. In their rejection of sinners like the tax gatherer, they refused even to teach them anything of the Old Testament scriptures. And they were therefore angry Frustrated that the Lord Jesus would dare to care for such lost, cursed people as these. They were so angry that it was almost like clockwork that they would complain of the mercy that Jesus showed them. They would grumble, they would mumble. And say over and over again, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They wanted to undermine the motivation of the Lord Jesus before the people. That somehow he had another agenda at work. They put the worst interpretation on the ministry of the Lord Jesus. This man colludes with them. He's up to no good. Pay no attention to what he says. But here's where it gets really fascinating. It's in just a simple word, in the word murmuring. They murmured, they grumbled. And in this, we see the hopelessness of the Pharisee. You see, this word describes the action and the attitude of the ancient Israelite. At their failure to enter the land after the spies' return, telling them of the greatness of the land, but that giants lived there, and only Joshua and Caleb encouraged the people to go up and take the land because God would fight for them. Instead, the people grumbled. They murmured against God and against his servant Moses. They questioned God's integrity. He has another agenda at work. He brought us out of Egypt to destroy us at the hands of these terrible armies. God is untrustworthy. We need to seize the initiative for our own self-preservation. We will not go up into the land of the Canaanites. We would rather return to Egypt. It's this tragic sense of grumbling and murmuring against God that became a byword of disbelief, that became a long, sad chain throughout the centuries that followed. It became a legacy of the fallenness of ancient Israel. It became a legacy of the failed leadership amongst prophet, priest, and monarchy. Among the pastors and teachers of Israel, because of their grumbling and murmuring, exile fell, destruction came. Those teachers were known as the under-shepherds of Israel. With God, the shepherd of Israel. And in that same way, the Pharisee and scribe of Jesus' day took on this mantle of honor. But the prophet Ezekiel prophesied against the under shepherds of his day, they had failed. Instead, God himself will shepherd and rescue the people. But how would he do this? And here is where it gets absolutely amazing. Go back and look at Ezekiel 34 on page 722, specifically to verses 23 and 24. This is what it says. I will set up over them one shepherd, My servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Now, here's the question Who is this David? Now, it's not King David. Because at the time that Ezekiel prophesied, King David had been dead for over 500 years. This David is the ultimate son of David. This David is what the historical David foreshadowed. The lion of David's tribe. This is Jesus, the son of David, the son of God. It is through Jesus, the good shepherd, that God the Father would shepherd his people. Jesus is making an astonishing claim in this first parable. He asserts his office and his person. He is the David. He is the Son of God. Now, as we turn to our study this evening, we're going to examine these first two parables as a unit because their structure is the same. It's loss and search, then recovery and joy. Let's begin there. Lost and found. Now, both parables begin with a description of loss. A shepherd loses one of his flock. A woman loses a coin. Both shepherd and woman begin to search. Both pour all their energy into the task. One combs the valleys and hilltops, continually calling either by voice or by whistle. Now I hope you have Ezekiel 34 still open. Because look again in how he unfolds the character of this great shepherd And how Jesus scoops it up in this parable. In chapter 34, verse 11, he says, I myself will search for my sheep. In 12, I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered. In verse 16, I will seek the lost. And I will bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the injured. And I will strengthen the weak. And in verse 22, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. Consider, my dear friends, what our Lord Jesus is doing here. He's describing how God himself, the search, is relentless. The shepherd cannot allow himself to rest. The lost sheep must be found. Now let's turn to the widow for a moment, the lady. Ancient homes were traditionally windowless and dark. So the only light came in through a low door. A lamp was always lit. The lost coin is of such value to the woman that she is a whirlwind of organized persistence. Straw that normally covers the floor is swept away as she searched every nook and cranny. Nothing was left unturned as she searched upon her knees. She must find the coin. She must find it. Again, what do we see as we compare the two parables together? We see this intensity, don't we? This passionate intensity that urges the shepherd and the woman not to give up. And this intensity is in direct relation to value to the value of the object sought. This is the teaching of the Lord Jesus here, how God himself seeks you, my dear friend, you, with a compassionate intensity. He seeks you, he calls you, so that you might come to know him as Savior and Redeemer. God Almighty, Lord of the universe, came as a seeking and willing Savior. He's come to you with that same persistent, irresistible love. Psalm 139 says this If I go up to the heavens, He is there. If I sleep in the deep, He is there. If we fly to the sun, he is there. My dear friends, we find him because he first finds us. So how does he find you? He finds us through the vanishing castles in the air that we make. Now what do I mean by vanishing castles? I mean the goals. The dreams that we make apart from him. The dreams we fail to achieve. The marriage that we wanted. The success we chased. The perfect home we wished for. All of them fail to satisfy. Why? because we were made for eternity. And only eternal communion with the God who seeks us will satisfy us. But next notice how the two storylines are virtually identical in respect to recovery and resulting joy. Of the shepherd, it says in verses 5 and 6, And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And we read of the woman in verse 9. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. You know, one of the earliest examples of Christian art is from the early 3rd century. It depicts the good shepherd bearing the recovered lamb on his shoulders. And one of the distinguishing features of this painting of the good shepherd is the sweetness of his face, the joy in his expression. It seems obvious, doesn't it, That for the persecuted church of that time, they found great comfort in this parable of the lost sheep. Consider the way he mentions the delicacy here, how he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing, a picture of his tender love. Because the lost sheep is much more than a missing piece of livestock he spies the sheep alive. He, he races to it. He picks it up. He checks it over. He plucks a thorn or two from the wool. He nuzzles it against his cheek. He joyfully hoists it on high on his shoulders and walks confidently home out of the wilderness. This is the great shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ. He takes the lost Perishing sinner on his powerful shoulders, and he takes him or her into his own home. King David said this prayer in Psalm 28 it is fulfilled in our Savior. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage, be their shepherd and carry them forever. And the Lord has promised in Isaiah 46.4 that he will continue to do exactly this all through our earthly years. This is what he says. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, and I will carry and save. You see, my dear brother and sister, he began carrying you and me even while he was on the cross, where all our sins were laid on his shoulders. This is what Philip Melanchthon, Martin Luther's right-hand man, once said. Inwoven in the text, there is a sweet, Signification of the Passion of Christ. He places upon his shoulders the sheep he has found. That is, he transfers to himself the burden of sin we all share. So, my dear friend, the question is simple Has he found you and lifted you high on his shoulders? Has he carried your sin for you? 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25 says this. He himself carried our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. My dear friend, has he tended your wounds by applying the healing balm of his wounds to yours? Is he carrying you home to the place he has prepared for you? Are you allowing him to do that for you? And so the application becomes clear, doesn't it? The purity, the simplicity of God's joy in the presence of his angels in every lost person who is found. Now, Jesus' description overturns any idea of God that is unengaged with his creation or wicked or evil in any way. Notice how he rejoices even more over a newly found sinner than he does for the multitude already in the fold. There is that initial lively joy in the moment of acceptance, that outshines other settled joys for a moment. We know this for ourselves in our own mortal way. If you have been a parent or a grandparent, you know the joy, the relief, when one sick child recovers than in pondering the health in general of your family. The fever breaks, the eyes begin to grow brighter, and we rejoice in that same way. Notice, too, that when God rejoices, all of heaven rejoices as well. It sings with joy. Why this heavenly rejoicing? Because a sinner repents. He turns from sin, her life changes. This is what Bernard of Clairvaux wrote of this text. The tears of the repentant form the wine of angels. That's an amazing bit of poetry, isn't it? The angels drink the wine of our tears in repentance and rejoice. I can say to you on the authority of Christ's word that if you are lost and he finds you and you thus find him and repent, God and his angels will rejoice over you. Here's the thing. We all begin as lost sinners. We all Are lost sheep. We are all sheep who have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his or her own way. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. But God. But God. God searches you out. He lifts you to his sovereign shoulders made wide by the cross. And we hang on, we believe. He carries our sins and bears us home as the heavenly host sings with joy. His grace is amazing, isn't it? Amen.
0: listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the email newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church, Ancient Truth, Real People, New Life.